So we have been in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark for a while now. This is, uh, we started this sermon series right when I came, and so we've been doing this for basically a year, and we are almost to the end. We've come to the climax of the book of Mark. We have two weeks left, this week and next week. And these weeks are what the whole story is about. This week in particular um, is about his crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is unique. This is the the unique thing to the life of Jesus. It's a strange thing to say it, um, but in some really important ways, we can say that Jesus was actually born into this world to die. I mean, it's a strange way to put it. But his death, we know this is, that it's not the end of his mission on earth. We'll get to that next week. But in a very real way, his mission on earth was to actually come and die. And that's unique to Jesus. I mean, his teachings are beautiful. And his teachings are true. But honestly, he, he said a lot of the same things that many of the other great moral teachers in the world had said. His teachings are not what's truly unique about Jesus. His miracles are amazing, of course, right? I mean, raising people from the dead, curing leprosy, healing illnesses. But if his miracles were what his entire life was about, then his ministry really only extended to a handful of people in the Middle East over the course of three years in a very small geographic region. I think what Christianity offers is something different. His teachings and his miracles are both tied to what's truly unique about Jesus, and that's his death on the cross. And if his life has any relevance for our lives today, it's because of what happened on the cross and in the passage we're about to look at in Mark 15. But here's what I find so interesting about it, all right? Is that if Christians throughout history are looking to this moment, this death, as their only hope for salvation and eternal life, I mean, if we're putting all of our chips on the table, that this thing is historically true and that it somehow miraculously applies to our lives, right? If we're we're saying that this moment, if you're investigating Christianity, this is the moment you need to understand to get to the heart of what Christianity is all about, if the moment of Jesus' death is that important, and it is, that's what we're saying, it is, the authors of the Gospels, they sure don't say much about it. Okay, this is interesting. Now, don't get me wrong. All four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they devote a ton of time to the events surrounding Jesus' death. Mark alone gives about a third of his gospel to the final week of Jesus' life. But when it comes to the actual moment of his death, this is what Mark writes. Mark 15, 24, and they crucified him. That's it. That's the extent of the description of Jesus' death. Now, why does Mark devote so little ink to such a crucial, important moment in Christianity? If this is what it's all about, why say so little about it? I think it's because he didn't have to. Okay, I I think everyone who read his letter at that time, uh, when it was written, would have been all too familiar with what crucifixion was, this institution from the Roman government. Um, Now today, of course, we wear crosses as jewelry. I'm sure some of you in this room have a cross on right now. Uh, We put crosses on t-shirts, right? There's goofy Christian t-shirts all over the world today with crosses on them. We have beautiful crosses in our church, handmade, crafted, inside and out. To us, a cross can be a piece of art. 
in this era, in this time in the world, the cross was a scandal. You couldn't say the word crucifixion in public company. Uh, No one displayed crosses in their homes. That would have been twisted and bizarre and weird. It was an execution device and an evil one at that. I mean, the first listeners, all they needed to hear when Mark wrote this gospel was the word crucified and a whole flood of tragic, horrible, brutal images would have flooded into their minds. Almost like someone saying the word Auschwitz today. I mean, this is the depths of human evil that we associate with that word, even more so for them. So I say all that because as I read our passage this morning from Mark 15, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of explain it as we go. I'm going to kind of interject some explanation and, and try to bring us into the story because even though in one way we're very familiar with the cross, I think in another way it's such a world apart that it takes a little bit of work for us to understand what it was that really happened that day. Now, we're not going to linger unnecessarily on the gruesome details, but we will try to get a glimpse of what Jesus endured. Why? Because this is the length. The cross is the length and the depth that he was willing to go in order to secure his people into his family. So in some ways, the the extent of the suffering that Jesus endured is an expression of the love that he is extending for you and for me, specifically for you and for me. So we're going to pick up the events of the crucifixion right after Jesus has stood trial before Pilate. He wasn't exactly found guilty by him, but he was sentenced to death anyway. Barabbas was released in his place, and a whole battalion of Roman soldiers, 600 men, had dressed him up in purple, a robe to mock him, put a crown of thorns on his head, and beat him before his crucifixion. So we're going to jump in at verse 20, but before we do that, let me just pray for our time in God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do ask that as we open your word and and we kind of enter into this holy ground, this, this central part, this central moment, this historical fact of Jesus' death on a cross at the hands of Roman soldiers, that, that you would show us um, what all that means for us, that you would show us not only that it's true historically, but that it still applies and it still transforms and it still has power today for our lives. We ask that you would open up our minds and our hearts to see your love in this passage this morning. We ask all this in your name. Amen. All right, so picking up in Mark 15, verse 20. When they had mocked him, again, this is the the centurion, this this whole 600 um, men uh, group of of Roman soldiers. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak they had put on him. They put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, one of the first things that we need to know about crucifixion is that it was very public, and it was meant to be very public, okay? So Jesus had just endured these two trials, but then they they marched him through town and went to to, to go kill him outside of town on a hill um, outside of the city walls. But to do this, they didn't take the most direct route. They kind of took him through a circuitous, long, winding path through the town of Jerusalem, so that the most people possible could see 
what happens when a, someone opposes the Roman government. If you're against Rome, this is what happens to you. This was a public display of shame and dishonor for the criminal. So they marched him through town so as many people could see him as possible. And they had Jesus carry his own crossbeam, uh, which would, which would the, the, the horizontal one, which it would eventually be attached to the vertical one when he was killed. But this beam, this crossbeam that he was carrying, I mean, it could be huge. Um, scholars that I read said it could be up to 100 pounds. And remember, he had just spent an entire night of... Um, of difficulty, of anguish. So he didn't sleep the night before. He had been in the garden praying emotionally, spiritually anguished. He had endured two trials, both of which were fraught with injustice and, and uh, you know, a kangaroo court. And at both of those trials, he'd been beaten by the crowds that were there. And before he was released from Pilate, he was scourged with a whip. This was standard practice for those who were going to be crucified in the Roman Empire. This whipping was so intense that it not only killed some men before they even made it to their execution, but it was actually considered an inverted, strange kind of mercy. Because what it would do is it would weaken the body so much that it would actually shorten the length of time that you hung on the cross to die. So it actually, um, it, it was kind of a backwards form of mercy. It was a whip of nine tails. They called it a flagellum with bits of bone and rock weaved into it, and it was designed to rip the flesh right off the bone. So Jesus stumbles to the place of his death. He's already been so abused that he can't carry this cross, and so the Roman guards who are leading him out to execution basically subscribe a passerby, this guy named Simon. Okay, They just pull him off the street corner and say, Simon, please carry this cross for Jesus. Turns out he's in Jerusalem that day with his sons, Rufus and Alexander. It's always interesting. Mark doesn't name a lot of people, specifically by name. Why does he go out of his way to not only mention Simon, but his sons who happen to be with him? Here's one reason, I think. Turns out Rufus, who is Simon's son, named here by Mark, is also named later in the Bible by Paul. In Romans 16, Paul writes, Greet Rufus, who's chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who's been a mother to me, as well. Now that is an interesting connection. In Jesus' hour of terrible suffering, the moment of great evil, could God have sovereignly orchestrated an encounter? Could he have organized the events so that Simon just happened to be in Jerusalem that day, just happened to be standing on that corner that day, and just happened to be grabbed by the nearest Roman guard and said, carry this cross? Could God have orchestrated all of that stuff to happen so that there was a moment of grace for this family that ended up transforming them and his sons and his wife and his whole family because of this moment takes off in a new spiritual direction. Could, could God have organized all of that in Jesus' suffering so that this family could be saved? I mean, you better believe it, right? And, and could Jesus still be orchestrating those kind of divinely inspired appointments today. I mean, maybe even in our worst hour, maybe even in, the, in, in our darkest. Imagine Simon standing there on the corner saying, no, 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 pick someone else. This is not my job. I did not come here to carry an execution device for the Roman government. But in that moment, the whole trajectory of his family was changed, right? Could God be using 
some of our most confusing, hardest, darkest moments to transform us for good. You better believe it. Picking up in verse 22. They brought him, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This wine-myrrh mixture was kind of a, um, a dulling, it had a dulling effect, and women would offer it to the men being um, marched out to be executed to take, take the edge off the pain as they were killed. But, but Jesus refused it, wanting to be fully present cognitively and, and physically through the entire ordeal. Verse 24, and they crucified him. And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And when it was the third hour, they crucified him. So at 9 a.m., the third hour of the day, the Roman centurions, acting as executioners that day, they nailed Jesus' hands to the cross beam, and they lifted it into place, attached it to the vertical beam, and they nailed his feet to that beam, and he hung there. Um, criminals were crucified naked to add to their and degradation as they died, so the soldiers played a game, a game of dice for his clothes as Jesus died. Verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, saying to one another, He saved others. He can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him reviled him also. Now, of course, these statements, these insults that were thrown at Jesus as he died are deeply ironic. They're not ironic in a funny way. But they're ironic because the people insulting Jesus meant them as insults. But they are saying things that are so deeply true about God's plan that they don't even know the truth that they're saying. So in verse 29, when the robbers mock him, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. They are watching the temple being broken in front of their eyes. And they have no idea that in just about 40 hours, it's going to be rebuilt in such a way that death and suffering and sorrow will never be able to touch that resurrected temple body again. They don't know what they're watching, but they say it truly. Verse 31, the chiefs say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. And they couldn't have told that truth any more clearly. Jesus came to save others, but to do that, he couldn't save himself. He had to choose one or the other. And in that moment of choice, Jesus chose to die in order to save his people, to save you and I into his family forever, if you accept the gift. Verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice in his native tongue, Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Now, they may have misheard him from the cross, and Eloi and Elijah may have sounded similar, so they thought he was yelling out to someone he wasn't. 
Verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. Now, in, in the process of execution through crucifixion, what, what actually killed you wasn't bleeding out, and it wasn't the, the trauma from the, from the injuries that you received. What you actually died of in this form of execution was suffocation. Over your, your body wasn't actually strong enough anymore to, to pull yourself up on the nails in your hands and your feet to be able to open your lungs to take in a breath. And so eventually you became so weak that you just hung there and you died of asphyxiation. You you died of suffocation. Um, But that is not how Jesus dies. Did you notice that? Jesus did not die here from the normal way that someone would die on the cross. He didn't die a normal death. In fact, in his last moments, he he still had the strength and the breath in his lungs to cry out to God with a loud cry, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? And then it says he, he gave up his spirit. Now, I think this is yet another clue for us that even though Jesus, throughout this whole process, appears helpless and powerless and looked like the pawn in the hands of small, evil, envious, fearful men uh, who were abusing their power to have him killed, he was actually always the one in control. And he was, the always, he was always the one um, who had the power. He held all the power in his hands. His life wasn't taken from him. His life was given up for the sake of those that he loved and that he held in his mind and his heart as he died. Verse 38 and 39. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who had stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said... Truly, this man was the son of God. Now, that is, that's what happened to Jesus, okay? That's the, that's the process of crucifixion. So when Mark says they crucified him, and it seems like it's not enough information, that's the world, that's the story that Jesus had to endure on our behalf. It was a horrible death. And part of understanding how deep God's love is for us is to understand how deep his descent goes into the sufferings of this world. But as important as it is to know what happened physically, historically, you know, um, verifiably, these are names of peoples with addresses. Mark's putting their names in there so that all this could be verified and looked up. This is a trustworthy account. As important as it is to understand what happened, I think it's even more important for us to ask, why? I mean, like, why did he come to live so that he could die like this? If this really is the mission of Jesus' life, why this? And maybe more to the point, how does this have anything to do with us on a November morning with a beautiful sunshine out, looking at the mountains here in 2018? Like, what do these atrocities and horrors in the ancient world have anything to do with us sitting here today? Well, I think the answer to that question is because of the miracles that happened on the cross. Did you catch them? There were, there were a number of miracles that happened as Jesus hung there dying. These are, these are life-transforming miracles that happened and that make his death 
directly powerful and accessible even for us today. This is not just history, it turns out, but it's actually access to the present power of God in our lives. So for the last bit of our time here, what I want to do is briefly look at three miracles that occurred as Jesus hung dying on the cross. Because I think they point us to why this moment sits at the very center of Christianity and how it can transform our lives. Miracle number one, the darkness. You probably noticed this one. So 33 years before this moment, uh, before Jesus' death, there had been an unnatural, uh, supernatural brightness that happened at midnight when it should have been the darkest on the night that Jesus was born. God shone a supernatural light into the world. And now, 33 years later, as he hung dying, there's a supernatural darkness that descends at noon, what should have been the brightest hour of the day. In fact, if you've been following along in the story, all of the critical events on the way to the cross for Jesus happen in the dark. His time in the Garden of Gethsemane, the trials in front of the Sanhedrin and Pilate, Um, And now an inexplicable darkness descends as he dies on the cross. And when darkness comes during midday in the Bible, it's always a sign of God's judgment. Okay, remember the plagues, the the, the next to final plague that God sent to Egypt as they continued to reject his word. It was a darkness that the text says could be felt. It was so thick that you could like feel it. Um, So 1914, Ernest Shackleton gets a group of guys together to try to go explore the South Pole. They're going to try to be the first people to cross the South Pole, right? And if you guys know the story from the book Endurance or anything else, their ship gets trapped in the ice and basically crushed by the polar ice. And so he's got a whole crew of men out on the South Pole alone. They have to endure the polar winter. And And the historians who write about this event say that the worst thing for him and his crew wasn't the freezing temperatures, and it wasn't the, the lack of food and their starvation. It was the darkness. The, the sun goes down for a full two months in, in the polar night, and they describe the darkness as totally disorienting. I, I mean, so much so that you don't know where you are. You, you start to lose track of who you are. People end up going crazy in the darkness of the polar night. The same thing is true spiritually, in the Bible. The darkness of the judgment of God in his word is it's orienting kind of judgment. But here's the thing. This isn't arbitrary, and this isn't random. God's judgment, his wrath, it's essentially, the Bible talks about it this way, as his absence. When God removes his sustaining, life-giving hand, our, our lives, they, they start to undo. They start to unwind. And so remember, when God first created the world, what was the first thing that he spoke into existence? Let there be light, right? And God sustains this world. He sustains our lives with the light of his presence. And when he removes his hand, creation starts to unwind. It starts to go backwards. And eventually, it ends in darkness. It ends in spiritual darkness. And this is what's happening to Jesus on the cross. Creation's unraveling for him. He's entering a darkness that... Um, that comes from God-forsakenness. His final cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, what does this all mean? This means that in this miraculous moment of midday darkness, 
Jesus, Jesus is experiencing the full absence of God so that we will never have to, okay? The, the maker of the world is being unmade so that we can always experience the sustaining presence of God's hand and his light. As the sin of the world, our sin settled on Jesus' shoulders, the love and sustaining hand of his father turned away, and he entered this chaos that undid him. And in that darkness, Jesus left the infinite love of God because of his infinite love for you and me. The miracle of midday darkness. Miracle number two, a torn curtain. Verse 38, we read that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This one's interesting. Uh, The curtain of the temple was this huge temple. I mean, it was more like a wall than a temple. It was thick. It separated the most holy place in the temple from the rest of the temple building. And that room behind the temple was a sacred place for the Israelites, for the Jewish religion. This was the place where heaven met earth. It was only accessible by one man, the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And tradition said that they would tie a rope to his ankle in case anything happened as he encountered the glory of God and he dropped dead, they'd be able to drag him out from behind the curtain. Okay, this was, no one's messing around here in this room. This was the place where God encountered humanity. And at the moment that Jesus died, the curtain ripped in two from top to bottom, just to be clear who's doing the ripping, okay? There's no misunderstanding there. And what the second miracle of the cross shows us is that in the moment Jesus died, he paved a way into the very presence of God for everyone who wants to go, who wants to follow Jesus there. So from now on, after the death of Jesus, you don't have to be uh, a Levitical priest. You don't have to happen to have been voted the high priest for the year, You no longer have to be male. You no longer have to be Jewish. You no longer have to have a rope tied to your ankle. God, because of what Jesus did here, the doors of heaven have been thrown wide open for anyone who wants the access to meet and know and encounter God. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Do you ever feel like you're adrift? Like you kind of don't know where you're going or what might happen or why you're here or what the next step should be for your life? Do you ever feel a little bit directionless, like you're just floating adrift? This says that this, this promise, this miracle of the access to know God, this can be an anchor for a drifting soul. I mean, this can be a centering, foundational gift from Jesus that gives direction and meaning and purpose to our entire lives. See, it's these two miracles of the cross. When you set these two things side by side, a a miraculous darkness and a torn curtain, you know what you have right here in these two miracles of the cross? you have the, the, the center of Christianity. You have the great exchange of the gospel. Do you know what these two miracles are offering you and me today? Jesus takes our place in the darkness so that we can have access to the light and the life of heaven. Uh, Jesus bears our sin on the cross so that we are clothed in 
righteousness and given access to heaven forever. Jesus forgives our debts so that we can be given the riches that he earned and owns as if they were always ours. That's the trade. That's the offer of the gospel, the great exchange of Christianity in these two miracles. But there's one last one that I want us to see. It's a bit more subtle. Um, It's not earthquakes or, you know, supernatural darkness or people getting up and walking out of graves, which are all things that happen when Jesus died. They're told about in the other Gospels. It's nothing quite so spectacular as that. But I think it might be the most hopeful miracle of all for us today. And we see it in the final words of the passage we read. When the the centurion who watched Jesus die saw that in this way he breathed his last, and he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. You know what that is? You know what the offer is there for you and me? That's the miracle of a transformed life. That's the miracle of encountering Jesus in such a way that he breaks through the hardness and the skepticalness of our hearts and our minds, and he transforms us, and he brings life where there was death, and he brings hope where there was hopelessness. I mean, this guy, this centurion, he was a brutal man. He was an executioner for the Roman government, okay? I mean, he was a hard man. He had seen many, many people die, and he had had a hand in many, many people dying. And something about the death of Jesus was beautiful and tender and unique, so much so that it broke through to his heart, looked at him, and this statement from a religious outsider from a man that we can assume was not that emotionally and spiritually sensitive. I mean, if his day job was an executioner for the Roman government, okay? A man who really should not probably have seen Jesus for who he was, named Jesus the most, most truly of any human in the Gospel of Mark. This is the most accurate human confession of Jesus in the entire Gospel from this man. This is the miracle of transformation. This is the deep mission that Jesus came into this world to achieve and that he did on the cross. It is this grace that can transform our lives. I mean, it was this grace from the cross that totally changed the trajectory of a young man's life um, who was upwardly mobile, educated, smart. He had a He was going to make a name for himself by persecuting Christians, and he encountered the grace of Christ, and it transformed his life, and it transformed his name from Saul to Paul, and he became so held by making another name great other than his own, the name of Jesus, that that Paul would go on to write, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul experienced the freedom of self-forgetfulness because of the grace of of the cross. That transformed his life. There's another man, John Newton, who was a slave trader. And he encountered the grace of, tr- of Christ. And you know what it did? It totally transformed his life. He became a pastor. He grew old. He grew blind. And he wrote these lines, which I know you've heard, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see Newton experienced the freedom of forgiveness from the grace of the cross, and it transformed his life. There's another young man that the grace of Jesus transformed. He was a teenager, 
His name is Abdi Rizak. You don't know him. Uh, he was 16 years old the last time I met him, and he lived in northeast Kenya, and he was from uh, an Islamic family, and he got to know a missionary, and they told him about Jesus, and after a year or two of considering this stuff, he thought, I, I believe this, and he went public, and he got baptized, but he knew that doing that would put him at risk because his older brother was a radical Muslim sheikh in the town where he lived, and it may, um, it may, it may have meant that his brother was going to try to have him killed, which he tried to do, but he failed to do. And so the last time I had a conversation with Abdi, we were sitting in his jail cell, not because he was in trouble, because that's the only place in town that they could keep him safe. And you know what he was doing? He was telling me about how wonderful it is to be a Christian and, and how good the grace of God is that he has been experiencing in his life. Now, Abdi experienced the freedom of an identity that is so deep and sturdy and certain that no matter what he would lose in his life, he would trade it all to know and experience the love of Jesus. That's the grace that transforms life. So what about you? Where do you need to experience the transformative love of the cross of Jesus? Because all of Jesus, everything he's ever said in his word, converge right here on the cross. I mean, this is the place where he secures our promise to eternal life. This is the place where he secures his promise for forgiveness and his promise to joy and his promise to spiritual life-giving community. All of that is secured right here in his death. The promise of God's presence with you forever is secured right here. All of these promises and more are the reason Jesus died on the cross. And the fact that he bought them for us with his own life is the miracle of Christianity. So this is the miracle of grace. So as the music team comes back up, I want to do something a little bit different today. We don't normally do this. But I want to just give us a moment to um, reflect, to consider um, the miracle of the cross that we've heard this morning. This is the kind of grace that has the power to transform your life. So maybe you heard something today about Jesus' death that you never really considered before. Um, Take a moment and thank him for his love, his sacrifice, and his grace that he displayed for us on the cross.